Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So, I know I just uh, published another really long episode, um like last week or something, I don't know. Um, but I still feel like I've been away for a long time because I was away for a whole week. And during that time, you know, um, didn't didn't listen to any podcasts and I'm still catching up on all kinds of stuff. I see uh, Eric Tankar interviewed his niece and I was like, man, why didn't I think of that? So I'm going to interview his niece now. I'm going to... Um, I'm thinking of interviewing my daughter um, about her experiences playing uh, playing RPGs. Uh, she says she wants to talk about kids on bikes. So we, if we, if that goes ahead, we'll probably uh, uh, talk a lot about that. Um, although I would also like to ask her about. She's basically she used hexographer to build her own like sandbox wilderness area, and she wants to run her cousins through through that sometime like when we finish curse of straw or something like that so i'd like to maybe talk to her about that as well um but that'll be something kind of possibly on the cards for the future in the meantime i have quite a few voicemails that um i haven't got around to answering yet so let's get into those first hey robert tim shorts from gothridge manor just finished listening to your episode scheduling is always a pain Luckily, I've had a pretty, um, you know, uh, steady group for years and that, that we play on Wednesdays. We were Mondays nights, but then we switched it to Wednesdays. But I have a Thursday night group that's near impossible to to get us together. Uh, as far as your least favorite things, mine would be at the table with someone trying to tell you how to play your character. That drives me freaking nuts. Some min-maxer dude wants you to do certain things, so he's telling you, well, do this, do that. Mm, that stuff just makes me want to smack somebody when they do that. So, uh, And I'm all on board with you with the rules light. Most of the time, I'm just taking my dice. I'm taking a pencil and uh, a graph, like a book of graph paper, and that's it. All right, talk to you later. So thanks for that, Tim. Sorry it's been nearly a month <laughs> Um, between you sending me that and me actually replying, uh, it's just been really busy over here. Um, yeah, no, uh, luckily like I, I have never had that experience personally where somebody's tried to, uh, play my character for me. Um, either, either, either nobody's tried that or I just ignored them because I, I frankly can't, I couldn't care less what other people think most of the time. Um, but I am aware that that is a problem in some groups and, and especially you, you get like the optimizers, you know, it's the whole player type where, where they always want everybody to do everything optimally all the time. And, you know, they not only want to play their own character like that, but if they feel like you're not using your character optimally, then they're going to try to say, no, 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 you, you know, I mean, God, God help you if you build your characters together at the table with a player like that and they'll want everybody to to choose like the the most optimal combination of race and class and stuff which is one of the reasons that i like white box so much is that there kind of isn't 
an optimal combination of racing class and you just rule down the line and you get what you get and then you know but i can see why that wouldn't appeal to the optimizer type i think if i noticed something like that going on at my table <coughs> i would i hope that i would be a good enough uh game master to kind of step in and just be like you know we all play our own characters you know or, or look at the character who's maybe getting some of that um, unwanted advice and be like, well, what do you want to do? It's your character. Hey, Dr. Groves, it's Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets. Um, yeah, I, I like the random table stuff. I love it. Uh, random dungeons. I've been doing that a lot lately. Um, I, uh, I, I wrote up a zine. Uh, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it on my podcast and I did, um, a background that was entirely a random dungeon. Um, I'm doing a random sewer crawl for my players right now. And, uh, I feel the same way, right? If they, uh, I've prepared a lot, but if they go off track, I can I can sit there and roll it at the table, and I'll get the same results as I rolled it at home. I just won't be able to spend an hour at a time going through it, and I'll have to do it right there with them. And that's a little more exciting, a little more emergent, and uh, works on my improv skills. So uh, keep at it, and I'd love to see this dungeon sometime. Have a good one. Thanks for that, Rich. Um, yeah, I, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to find a way to start like uh i don't know releasing little bits of this uh this uh random dungeon maybe i'll do it in conjunction with my my daughter's uh wilderness uh area maybe i'll ask her if she can find a spot in her wilderness for my mega dungeon and we can kind of merge them together anyways that'd be that'd be some cool stuff um and sometimes that when i think about like improv because you mentioned improv and i feel like the the art of the game master is really the art of improvisation which you know i i wouldn't say that improv is like my personal forte in in most other respects i do i do in my real life i do like to have a lot of like foreknowledge and planning and routine and stuff like that um and one of the things that i think i get from running an rpg <clears throat> is it it forces me out of my comfort zone into having to do stuff on the fly and make stuff off the fly and think fast and and cope with uncertainty and i think that is a healthy experience for somebody like me like you know when you when when something makes you anxious you know you don't necessarily want to always go out and experience it if you're just going to give yourself anxiety but on the other hand if you know, nobody can be certain about everything all the time and i feel like this is a a, a good and relatively safe way to, to learn to cope with a certain amount of uncertainty um so i do i do actually end up enjoying that aspect of game mastering is dealing with the randomness and and dealing with unplanned uh incidents and events and things and having to just cope with changes on the fly um so yeah hey robert this is cody i'm with the no save for you podcast and um i just recorded an episode this evening about uh dungeon crawl classics specifically as a call to arms um for your request you've made a few episodes ago um about trying to sell you on dcc so um i think you should give that a listen and uh, maybe give it a shot um as for your most recent episode i'm like halfway through it it's pretty long um so i will keep listening and call back in with my thoughts talk to you later Thanks for that, Cody, and uh, thanks for actually addressing that um, in your episode. I've been, uh, I've, I've just recently been going through through your episodes, um, 
And uh, I'm really liking your podcast. So uh, thanks, uh, thanks a lot for coming on board. Uh, you know, jumping on the the anchor thing. Um, there's there's now so many great like people out there producing uh, content on here. It's it's uh, it's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, because I asked I asked that question about DCC a while ago, um, and for a while only Colin really responded. Um, um, and and he was kind of his his uh, take was kind of like it's a bit complicated, um, especially for younger kids. Um, and that was my worry. My worry was that because it was such a big book and there were so many tables and stuff that it would be unwieldy at the table. I don't I don't really want to do a lot of page flipping and stuff like that. Um, one of the one of the things that I'm really loving about White Box is that monsters are so easy that I don't even have to look them up, you know? So, uh, chances are I can kind of remember what their stats are. Um, but all I really need to do is come up with hit dice and armor class. Their damage is going to be based on D sixes. When you have their hit dice, you know, their attack bonus or so what their Thaco will be. It'll be 19 minus their hit dice and their save will be 19 minus their hit dice. And the only other thing you'd need to consider is if they have another special ability, like, a you know, like remember a ghoul paralyzes you if they hit with their claw. So, you know, you give people a save against, well, <clears throat> it's just a save, but I guess some people will have a immunity or resistant or like a bonus to saves uh, to certain types of saves. So... You know, instead of like, if if I drew a random encounter of a ghoul, I don't even think I would bother to look the ghoul's stats up. Like, I think I would just do it on the fly. And I can also make up bespoke monsters on the fly. So I it means that I kind of never look at the book. Um, and I mean, I know other people have kind of mentioned that about White Box and about Swords and Wizardry Light as well. Like, that's kind of the whole point is that you don't even really need to bring the rules with you anymore. So that was that would have probably been my main concern with DCC, is that there'd be a lot of page flipping. But um, I like what you say that it's actually really more about randomization. That it's not like like <clears throat> Pathfinder First Edition is longer than the U.S. tax code, and if you were going to run all of those rules, I mean the tonnage of books that you would have to take with you would stagger the mind and there would be so much page flipping and Pathfinder is a game that attracts rules lawyers and your players would be looking stuff up or making you look stuff up. But yeah, the way that you said, the way that you described DCC, it sounds like that the bulk of that book isn't rules, lawyery minutia, it's randomization and randomization is my favorite thing. So, um, so that has a that has inspired me to kind of look into that. And you know, maybe it is a bit beyond my kids now, but you know, kids grow up. <laughs> so um so it could be something to play down the line. Anyways, uh thanks again for phoning in with that and thanks and thanks again for uh doing that episode and I'm um, really enjoying your podcast so far. And speaking of Colin Green, here is the man himself. Hello, Robert. It's Colin, Spike Pit. Uh, it seems like we hadn't heard from you for for a little while, but uh, I know time flies and uh, people get busy, etc. But really enjoying your episodes, and um, I've got to applaud your thoroughness 
Um, and this, getting back to the roots of Dungeons and Dragons, I, I find particularly fascinating. You're doing a lot of uh, a lot of the legwork and saving me the effort. So uh, keep up the good work, and um, I'm glad your your little girl's enjoying the games, and um, as is my youngest. So take care. Catch you later. Yeah, yes, indeed, Colin. Yeah, people haven't heard from me for for a while because yeah, like I've, I've been on holiday, and also, I mean, they're, they're like there are so many anchorites now that I'm finding it's it's hard to do my. I used to have this little tight rotation, you know, of of who I would listen to on which day and stuff like that, and like now there's way more, so I'm having to kind of. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to keep track of, of new episodes, especially for some, some, some people have, a a way more frequent schedule than, than others. I mean, like, you know, Tankar's Tavern, that's obviously like every day. So I have to like, listen to them in bulk. Usually they're pretty short. So that's, that's not a, that's not a big deal, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I am kind of finding it hard to, uh, to keep up, uh, with everybody's, everybody's podcast. I'm doing my best. Um, yeah, and I guess for the, the thoroughness, that's just kind of, that's like, that's what I do. Um, I have a, I have a PhD in medieval literature. Um, I'm, I'm into looking into the literature of the past. So when I, when I get into something, I go right back as far as I possibly can and see where it began. Um, and that's, yeah, that's just that's just kind of I enjoy I enjoy that I enjoy looking up at, at what things are like and I kind of like well I want to know like what were the first the first players of this game what what kind of experience did they have you know and that's why that's why I looked looked for that earliest uh, dungeon generator you know the one in the back of the first edition dungeon master's guide is probably just as good but I knew I would know in my heart that that wasn't the earliest one that that somebody playing original Dungeons and Dragons in 1974 wouldn't have had access to that because that didn't come out until 1979. So, you know, what, how would you have, have randomly generated an old school dungeon in 1974? You know, and that's why I had to go and, and look into those, you know, first Dragon Magazine and then before that to the Strategic Review. So, anyways, yeah... That's just, you know, that's what I do for fun. Um, I should probably change my blog focus to like RPG archaeology or something like that, you know. So this is my third attempt to record this content um, because I, you know, trying to work hard not to make it too uh, rambling and mediocre. But uh, I've been thinking a lot about skills, skill checks and skill systems and RPGs. They are kind of my least favorite thing in RPGs. Um, and I, uh, I use them less and less, even when, uh, even when the system includes them. For instance, um, in my, uh, my white box game that I run at my friendly local game store... One of the players remarked that it felt really different from 5e. And uh, when he said that, I thought, that's, that's funny because it doesn't feel that different to me. 
I was almost disappointed at how how uh, similar to 5e it felt when I was actually running this white box game. And then I realized I run 5e like it's an old school system. Um, I don't like skill checks, so I don't use them any more than I have to. So um, a lot of the things that I do when I'm running white box, I do when I'm running 5e as well. Um, and I guess that that is... That's not how everybody else runs 5e. But why do I dislike skills in games? Because if you go back to the three little brown booklets, the, uh, the dice mechanics that are specified, like the, the player actions that need to be resolved with a dice roll, are actually pretty few. You have uh, attack rolls and saving throws, Clerics have the turn undead ability. And then there are some roles for pushing open a stuck door, searching for a secret door, listening at a door. Um, there are some GM-facing roles, like triggering traps, or surprise, or you know, wandering monster checks, and things like that. But there's really not a lot of things that the original game specifies that you need to do and resolve with a specific named dice roll. Um, the implication of that stripped-down, bare-bones version of the game is that anything the players uh, attempt to do that isn't an attack roll, saving throw, the cleric's turn undead ability, or, you know, one of those door mechanics, basically... Secret doors, listening to the doors, pushing open a stuck door. That you figure it out yourself. How you want to resolve it. And my preferred way is to do it narratively. So I like to start up a conversation about, about the environment and about what the PCs perceive. And I like them to ask questions. And... Uh, you know, base their interaction on the answers to those questions. And then we determine whether it succeeds by, does it make sense that it would? For instance, they have gone through several traps and I have never once actually asked them to roll their thievery skill. We're using the white box thief that James Bond designed where thieves get a thievery skill, which starts off at a one in six chance to do something thiefy. And that would include disarming a trap. But a 1 in 6 chance isn't a very good uh, good likelihood of success for disarming a trap. So I don't use it. Um, I mean, it's, it's always there in my back pocket if, we just, if we're getting nowhere and we need to resolve this. It's like, fine, roll your thief skill. But that hasn't happened. What, what's happened instead is I've described what they see. They've asked questions about it. And it's not just the thief. We have two thieves in the party, but the entire party is actually getting in on this. And everybody's asking questions and suggesting things to do. And it becomes this group puzzle that they solve, and they eventually decide on what method they're going to use to interact with the trap. And then if it makes sense that that would be successful, then, then it is. And so far, they have not got caught by any traps. But each trap has become an event, you know, instead of a, a random thing like, oh, you stepped on this, make a saving throw or you die, you know, or take damage. They, they've become 
encounters in and of themselves. And yeah, and, and we haven't needed to use dice for that at all. <clears throat> so what I, one of the things I dislike about skill checks, and I don't think that this was ever the design intention from third edition to fifth edition. I don't think, I don't think the designers of the game ever intended that this is actually the way you play. But the fact is the skill system does make it easy to not interact with the descriptions, not interact with the environment and just say, I search the room for traps and then you roll your D20. Um, I'm going to disarm the trap and you don't even have to know what the trap is. Now, I mean, it, when you're not doing it that way, when you're, when you're not just rolling dice and reducing everything to a die roll, the onus is then on the GM to come up with details because this whole thing doesn't work if there are no details to interact with. That means that when you, when you think of a trap, you know, you know, you don't only have to think of what the effect of the trap is, but you have to think about how does it operate because you have to you have to describe what bits of the mechanism they see and you have to describe the effects of what they do to try to test the mechanism and the same goes for secret doors you know you have to think now how does this secret door actually open so you know there's a lot more work goes into this uh, on the part of the game master if you're going to do it this way, just like, I mean, you're, you're expecting them to put more work into interacting with the trap. So that means that you have to put more work in to give them something to interact with. Otherwise, how are you ever going to know for sure whether they successfully disarmed the trap? But, um, yeah. So just resolving it with a die roll takes that whole thing completely out of the game. And, uh, it also reduces success to, a random event. That's one of the things about die rolls that you have to remember. Die rolls are random events. I'm sure I've said this before. I don't like, um, like obviously everybody's happy when they roll a high number on their d20. But sometimes I feel like people are treating it like an accomplishment and it isn't an accomplishment. A good, a good die roll during combat is the result of a random occurrence and choices you made at character creation. So it's not the same kind of accomplishment as if you solved an actual riddle in game. If there was a special thing and the only way you could, you know, get past that and get to what was beyond, beyond that, like say there was a magic door and you literally, you the player literally had to solve a riddle and you did and you got the special thing that was on the other side of that door, that's an accomplishment. You solved that riddle. If there's a, an actual mystery in the game, you know, like there, there's a, something's happened and there is a culprit and there are clues and you successfully solve the clues, you the player, not by rolling dice to say, I'm going to do a knowledge check to see if I understand this clue and then get the DM to tell you for free. That's an accomplishment. Rolling any given number on your d20 is not an accomplishment. It's a random event. I mean, on a, on a long enough timeline, you're always going to run, you're always going to roll some high numbers and some low numbers. Um, and as bad as 
skill checks are for some of these physical things. Like I don't, the ones that I mind least tend to be like strength based ones. Cause it's like, well, usually if you're using brute strength, you figured out that the thing you need to do is just pound on something, you know? Like if you if you did a strength check instead of a, a chance in six to open a stuck door, you would, you know, you had to look at the door, it's not locked, it just appears to be stuck in place, and you just need to give it a good shove. So it's really like, are you strong enough to give it a good shove? And does it actually work? That's fine. I don't I don't mind things like that. Um but I, I do mind uh circumventing dungeon events by simply using a uh a random a random roll of the dice and yeah like searching the room for treasure instead of actually asking what's in the room and deciding where you want to look i also i hate the insight check um i've come to really hate that um it was one of my favorite things when i am running old school dnd for somebody who's come from modern dnd and they're like they're interacting with an NPC and they don't know whether the NPC is telling them the whole story or telling them the truth. And they ask, is there like a way that I can find out if they're lying? It's like, no, there isn't. You just have to use your, you have to use your literal judgment. That's uh that's one of my favorite moments. And that's actually one of the times where it really does feel different than, uh, than 5e because there is always that insight check. I don't like history checks. If there's something, some bit of lore that everybody is aware of, then they may the players may as well know. Like remember, they live in the world, they'll have heard stories and rumors and things like that. Just tell them. If it's something that's specialized, then they have to find out who the, who to ask. Rather than rolling dice, to, "Oh yeah, I know the history of this thing." Um, one of the things I really like in uh, Courtney Campbell's uh, blog is he talks about when you say no, don't just say no. Tell them you don't know this now, but here's how you might find out. Give them some ways. And then it, if, they're, if they're then willing to go to other place and seek out the person who has the information they need, then they can do that. Or if they feel like it sounds like it's more trouble than it's worth. Then they can say, well, I don't want to know that badly, so I won't. But you're not just saying no, and you're not giving it to them for free. You're saying it's specialized information, and this is where you might look to find it. And then they can decide whether they want to do that or not. I think that's brilliant. Um, and again, then you, you don't need to roll dice for that. You give them an actual in-game activity. And, you know, there's stakes involved. Um, cause it will take game time and traveling possibly, and they don't know how the interaction is going to go. So, um, charisma checks, there is, you know, the, uh, the charisma bonus goes back to the original game and the kind of reaction checks and stuff like that. Um, I don't mind those so much, but actually even in 5e, I do them old school style. I, I literally, I roll 2d6 for reactions. I do that for monsters as well. I've just kind of decided I like that better. I like it better that randomly encountered monsters don't necessarily attack. They weren't necessarily expecting to have to deal with the PCs any more than the PCs were expecting to have to deal with them. So let's find out 
who's up for a fight? Maybe the trolls just ate and they're not hungry. You know, um, and I do that with uh, NPCs as well. Instead of saying roll a charisma check, I roll a reaction check to the PCs. And then I will take individual bonuses into account when a, an individual e- NP or individual PCs asks a specific question or makes a specific request. But, yeah, I mean, it, I feel like it's really, really easy in a in a the full skill system that you get in modern editions of D anD D to just blow past all these things and reduce them to one random occurrence, which is a die roll. And I mean, I'm, if that's the way you like to play, then that's fine. One thing is, like, maybe you don't want to spend an hour working on one trap, like I do. I, I, I do actually want that trap to be an event and have everybody come together and get some creative ideas on what to do about the trap or the secret door or the riddle. I, uh, I, you know, I don't run a, a, a low combat game, but I also don't run an only combat game. But if you're if you're just waiting to get to the fights, then yeah, you're gonna want to speed these things up. And I guess skill checks can be good for that. But I feel like they take some of my favorite things out of it. So that's the first thing I, I dislike about skill checks. The other thing that I uh, dislike about skill checks is that there are too many of them. And uh, this is this is specific or pretty specific to Pathfinder and 3.5, which has um, quite a lot of skills. They, they, they stripped a lot of them down for 5e. Still probably too many, but, uh, but it's not as bad as Pathfinder. And, uh, and the reason this stands out to me is I think that kind of across the board, a design approach that Pathfinder uses that doesn't speak to me um, is it's trying to be too comprehensive. You know, they're they're kind of a they're kind of there's kind of a glass half empty and glass half full way of looking at a rules light system, like uh, like the white box style of D anD. d the half empty is you look at how few things there are, how how few uh, defined actions there are, and how few classes there are, and how few races there are, and how few spells there are, and stuff like that, and think, man, I can't do anything in this game. There, there's so little that I can actually do. And the glass half full way is to look at it and say, wow, I can do anything in this game. You know, there are no rules telling me the limits of what I can do. Because the thing about when you take the Pathfinder approach and you uh, you try to make a mechanic for everything and list as many skills as you possibly, you know, can and have a, an entire splat book full of equipment and things like that and a whole splat book full of new spells and you know, keep putting on more feats and more classes and more races and stuff. You think you're expanding the game, but the thing is, is that you will never, ever be able to make one rule for every single thing that everybody can imagine. So 
no matter how big that list is, it's never going to be infinite. And therefore, it's always going to be a list of the only things you can do. Um, this feels familiar to me, like I've said it before, but you know, since I'm in the business of doing mediocre rambling, I'll just say it again. In uh, During Bill Clinton's presidency, um, when, uh, when he had a hostile Republican Congress, they didn't pass a lot of laws, and they called it a do-nothing Congress. And uh, my dad really liked that. He liked that they didn't pass a lot of laws. He liked that it was very difficult to get legislation passed. And somebody pointed out that, oh, they only passed like 369 bills this year. And, and his response was, that's 369 things you're not allowed to do anymore. You know, sometimes like the more you try to add stuff to it, the more limitations you end up putting on things. Whereas if there aren't the rules there to begin with, then there are no limitations. Now, you know, this means that there's a lot more work has to go in usually on the part of the game master to resolve random player actions. And also you on the part of the player, you have to think of things, you know, instead of looking through your player's handbook and looking at all the actions that you can do and saying, okay, these are the things I'm going to do when it's my turn. You have to think literally, what do I want to do? There's no list of things that I can choose from. I have to literally think, what would I do? Or what do I really, what would my character actually do? You know, the 5e actions in combat section does include a little blurb saying you can do other things than these 10 things. But in practice, in my experience, people have come to view those as the only 10 things you can do in combat. These are the 10 things you do on your turn or the 10, the 10 things you can choose from to do on your turn in combat. And they are the only 10 things. And again, it was never the designer's intention that it should be that way, but it's really easy to fall into that trap. Whereas if those things aren't delineated in the first place, then you don't have those limitations. One of my favorite proposed actions a player ever had was on their turn, instead of attacking, they wanted to toss their rope to another player and run circles around one of the targets to try to trip him, to try to tangle up his legs so he couldn't move, to immobilize him. To me, that is D&D. It's not rolling your D20 over and over again until one side runs out of hit points. It's thinking outside the box like, well, yeah, I mean, I have weapons and I can attack. What else can I do? I have rope in my bag. Could that be useful? You know, that's like, that's why I, that's why I play is to hear those things, the, the unusual things, the creative things. And those things I feel are limited when you have a long list of actions with specific dice mechanics associated with them. And I feel like nowhere in the game is that more prevalent in, than in skill checks. You know, when you look at a list of skills, no matter how long that list is, these are the only things then you can do in the game. And it's worse than combat because skill checks apply to every part of the game, not just combat. So you're not placing that in it. You know, combat should be a bit limited because you're, you're pressed for time. And if you, if you don't at least defend yourself or flee, you're probably going to die. Because it's combat. 
But the rest of the game, there should be any number of things you could try to do. So why would you li limit that? And again, you know, I don't think the people who designed 3.5 or Pathfinder or 5e ever wanted that to be what skills are for, but it's pretty easy to slip into that. And I've seen it happen. So that's why I do not like skill checks and why I do not use them. And in 5e, I've basically been moving towards if the players volunteer a skill check, I will let them do it. But apart from that, I will try to resolve as much as I can through the narrative, through you know them describing their interactions. And if it comes down to something like sneaking up, I'll, I'll use things like passive perception. And uh, I, I've pacified, like, or pacified a lot of other skills in 5e where, you know, it's just, it's 10 plus their bonus. And I mean, I can do that for knowledge checks, for instance. If somebody asks about a random bit of lore and their history is plus six, then I just pretend they rolled a 16 on their history check and I'll tell them what a 16 would get them. If they want more, then they can roll and see if they can get higher than that. But they have to volunteer it. So I just, I don't know. I, I don't like going around and saying every single time you do this, roll of this check. And I mean, stealth ones are particularly bad. This is one of the, one of the few things that Chris Perkins does a lot that I, that I don't like and, and don't try to emulate is, you know, he'll just ask people randomly to roll, make a perception check. And invariably, everybody rolls really low. And then he just goes, oh, well. And now they all know that there is something to perceive and that they haven't perceived it. And if he handled that in a different way, then they could actually be surprised. Like the players could literally be surprised. You know, in, in uh, the cases I'm talking about, Acquisitions Incorporated and Dice Camera Action, the players are all good at not mixing player knowledge and character knowledge. But... You wouldn't even have to worry about that if you if you were resolving these surprise moments in a slightly different way. But yeah, that's one you know it's one thing that uh, the fact that the perception checks like that were one of the first skill checks I actually dropped just because it does spoil the surprise. A third thing is what I think. Um, Matt Coville called dogpiling, which is when somebody makes a skill check and they obviously fail and then every other player decides to make that skill check. And it's like, look, man, if you have five people all rolling around, all rolling their dice, one of them's going to make it. You know, or or it's very likely that one of them's going to make it. And then in case, what was the point? Like, why, why have a DC set if you're just going to let them roll, roll until somebody hits it, until somebody hits the DC, then there's no point in having the roll in the first place. You know, I mean, I, um, even in, in white box D and D, I have to think about what I'm going to do about stuck doors. Because if I have eight players and they all try to open a stuck door, one of them's going to do it. So then why have the stuck door in the first place? There has to be some kind of consequence for not do for not opening it. Either there has to be a limit to how many attempts can be made or, you know, there, there has to be some kind of 
appreciable consequence of having too many attempts. And some of them are pretty obvious. Like if a lot, if, if player after player is trying to push this door open, then there's no chance that they're going to surprise whatever's on the other side of the door. And, you know, you can also have wandering monster checks for every failure beyond the first one or something like that. So that they understand that they can keep working on that door, but it may go ill, you know. They may either they may have to fight something before they get it open, or they may have to fight what's on the other side at a disadvantage. Anyways, those are some of my thoughts on skills and why I don't really use them and why they are more or less my fa- my least favorite uh, D and D game mechanic. I mean, they do have to exist. Um, you do have to have a re- a way to resolve things that have a, a possibility of failing but aren't attack rolls or saving throws or spells. Um, in white box, I use the chance in six. Um, that as the advantage of being really easy, it mimics of existing game mechanics like pushing open a stuck door or listening at a door. Um, its drawback is it's not very precise. It, it's a if you think about all dice rules are mimicking percentage probability of success. It only goes in increments of sixteen point six six six. You can you can get a perfect third in terms of your probability, and you can get a perfect fifty percent. But the highest you can ever get is like eighty three and a third. So you can't have something that has a 90% chance of success and you can't get something that has a 10 or even a 15 chance of success or a 20. So it doesn't match up with how we perceive reality. You know, obviously the the best increments are 1% using percentile dice, but if you're going to use percentile dice to resolve everything, then you have to set difficulties in percentiles as well. And personally, as a designer and as a game master, I never want to worry about whether something is 43 or 44% likely to happen. You know, increments of five are good enough. So D20 rolls can do that. They do, D20 rolls basically mimic percentile dice in increments of five, five, of 5%. Any given number has a 5% likelihood to come up and any range of numbers is five times the numbers in that range. Um, one, uh, one way that percent or D twenties have been used for these types of checks or, uh, BX had the, uh, the ability, the ability score checks where you roll under your ability score on a D 20. So considering that your ability scores can't go higher than 18, and uh, a 20 sided die goes up to 20, and that hitting your ability score is still a failure. If you have an 18 in a given ability and you need to rule under that, you still have a 15% chance of failure. So even if you're like, if you have your 18 strength or your 18 dex, high as it possibly can be, there's still a 15% chance that you're going to fail because 18, 19, or 20 are failures. There's, those are three numbers. Three times five is 15. I like that a lot, actually. Um, it, first of all, rewards you for having a high ability score. 
in a in a much more direct and incremental way than say like white like swords and wizardry white box only gives you a plus one if you have a, a 15 or higher and there's no difference in your bonus between having a 15 and an 18 there's no difference in your bonus between having a seven and a 14 so there's quite a lot of you know things that's scores that are equivalent in their game effect but if you're actually rolling under your ability score then having that one extra point you know having a a 17 instead of a 16 that gives you an extra five percent likelihood that you're going to succeed on tests against that ability so that's good it uh it doesn't grow with the character so you're as good at ability checks at 10th level or 20th level as you were at first level because old school D&D doesn't have that periodic buffing of your ability scores that you get in modern D&D which I personally I don't like that I don't like oh you just get to buff your ability scores because you hit this level um, I feel like that's getting into the superhero style of play there are of course ways to raise your ability scores at least temporarily you can get a girdle of giant strength or something or a headband of intellect things like that iron stones i think of course those things can be taken away from you as well but i like those because you have to find them you have to earn them by 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 finding them where they are hidden and defeating whoever was holding them and you know they can be taken away from you um, you can also roll under your ability score on multiple D6s. That's a good one because you can raise or lower the number of D6s based on how difficult the actual task is. So if you're rolling, if you're making an ability check to perform a certain random task and you're just rolling under it on a D20, you can never, you can never account for how difficult that task is. It's basically somebody with an 18 dex is just as good at walking a tightrope over a thousand foot cavern as they are at trying not to slip on a slightly slippery floor. But with uh, multiple D6s, you can say that like default is roll under on 3D6. Particularly easy could be 2D6, in which case anybody with a 13 or higher would automatically succeed. So you, you know, would have to take into account that a 2d6 task is easy enough that somebody with an above average ability score would have no chance of, of failing. It wouldn't, you wouldn't really need them to roll. 4d6 for difficult tasks, maybe a really, really hard task is 5d6. You have to think like, even if you have an 18 and you, uh, you need to roll 4d6, the chances of you rolling higher than your ability score just got a lot, like, they just increased. It also takes into account the uh, the bell curve because you're rolling multiple dice. So one thing about preparing this, if you're going to use that, is you would have to think about, you would have to maybe work out the bell curves for the various uh, groups of dice to see, you know, how does this actually change the likelihood or play test it a lot until you got a feel for what kind of results do you get when you roll 4d6, 5d6, 
And, you know, you also have to decide how high do you want that to go? Like, how many D6s are you going to max out? What's the hardest ability check? Is it six? Is it eight? But that's a pretty good way to, to do these things as well. The, um, the things that I like better about ability checks, rather, as opposed to skill checks, is that... There are, they're only associated with your abilities, so you just do them whenever you think the, the player is going to attempt something that might fail, and you just need to reach for some quick mechanic. It's like, well, okay, fine, uh, roll, under your, roll under your decks for this, you know. Instead of saying, oh, does this fall under this skill, or is this one of the, one of the specified skills in the game? You just say, hmm, this sounds, like some, this sounds like something that will be hard for somebody who isn't very agile. So roll under your decks. Or this sounds like something that you would need to be pretty strong to do. So roll under your strength. Or <clears throat> you could probably figure this out if you're pretty smart. So roll under your intelligence. You know, um, It keeps it free form. Instead, instead of there being a discrete list of skills, you just say you just you just have to take a, take a moment to think what of the six abilities does this most fall under. Um, however, yeah, I, I basically when I run white box, I just stick to the chance in six because although it's imprecise, it's super easy and it's in keeping with the specified mechanics in the game. Um, Anyways, that's enough mediocre rambling from me for uh, for one episode. I'd actually hoped to get this out yesterday, which was Halloween. Um, instead, it's coming out today, which is the Feast of All Saints or Day of the Dead. Um, for those of you who are Mexican or have Mexican ancestry or are interested in Mexican culture. There's actually two Days of the Dead, so tomorrow is also Day of the Dead. Tonight is the one that specifically commemorates the spirits of dead children. Um, yeah, anyways, I found out this morning that a certain game designer apparently thinks that um, the uh, OSR podcasters are mediocre ramblers um i basically i already feel that way about my podcast i have depression to tell me that i don't need somebody else to point it out to me so um but thanks anyway um i still like your game so don't worry about that um if it's just a, a matter of you know your blog is better than mine yes it is you know, your YouTube channel is better than my podcast. Yes, it is. You win, you know, just like Donald Trump in 2016. So congratulations. Anyways, um, a lot of cool new stuff has come out recently that I uh, have on my list to play test. Uh, JB Publishing uh, came out with uh, um, his 1-6 adventures, which basically uses only one d6 um so you can play it with just one d6 i'm a big fan of games that use common dice because although it's not hard to get a, a, a set of uh 
of RPG dice, like the standard D4, 6, 8, 10, 12, and 20, um, it still is one more barrier to people who are interested in the hobby, but not quite sure about it. So if you have, you know, a nice light introductory rule set that also only requires them to use dice they already have, then that's one more barrier removed. Um, so I'd like to play test that with my kids soon. Um, I actually saw an advanced, like an earlier version of it. Um, and yeah, the, the, the kind of official release, he's tightened it up a bit. Um, I really like that. There's one of the, one of the classes you can, you can be is, uh, like a, a an insectoid it reminds me of one of the uh playable races in uh blue home journeyman and uh although like my usual approach is to run a fairly low fantasy game i do want to kind of run one of these like post-apocalyptic kind of dying earth style games and i feel like that's a great that's a great class and race to have for that like you know the it's far far in the future but we've kind of blown ourselves back to a medieval style of technology and in addition to normal humans there's mutant humans and insectoid humans and stuff i I feel like that could be a really fun game so i'm really excited to try that out um obviously ben milton has come out with nave colin green was talking a bit about nave i'd like to uh test test that out with my kids um in the near future um, I mean, I've read through through it. Um, there's a lot that I that I like in it. I do still prefer the Maze Rats magic system, but I do like that his. Um, I do like that the spells are levelless. They go up with you with your level with your character level, and I like that he has fixed levels so that spell levels so that the um, spell level and character level are the same. I mean, it's one of these things where personally, like, it doesn't bother me that that spell level and character level don't match in standard versions of D&D. Just like descending armor class is one of these things that it's like, well, I can, I can, I can cope with it. It's the way it works. But he has a point. It is unintuitive. And F... I think that I just got the Black Hack second edition, and I think the Black Hack also does the same thing. It makes spell level and character level match. It is actually a good idea. Um, And it is another thing that, you know, now new players don't have to wrap their head around the fact that your spell level and your character level are not the same, because they are. So that's that's really good thinking. Um, Like I just said, the Black Hack second edition, I just got the PDS for that. Um, there's some really good improvements. Like there's some of the mechanics I wasn't crazy about in the first edition that have changed slightly. And I really dig the new changes. So I'd like to talk about that in the near future. And, um, there's some great, there's some great random tables and monster descriptions that are in keeping with the style of the black hack, the kind of weird and wonderful style. Almost like... You know, like, Lamentations of the Flame Princess is famous for being weird, and it is. It's also really dark. And the thing about the Black Hack, there's something kind of punk rock about it. Almost like it doesn't take itself too seriously. 
And so the weirdness of it, I really, I really dig that style of weirdness. It's like, it's weird and wonderful, but also kind of fun and irreverent. It like, it obviously loves old school D&D and yet it is completely irreverent about it. And that's the way that punk was, you know, punk loved a lot of stuff, but it was never reverent about even the things that it loved, including other punk, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of great stuff to talk about with the black hack. And um, although I personally wasn't very impressed with my review of Dark Places and Demogorgons, I thought it was rambling and mediocre, phrase of the day. But uh, Eric Bloat obviously appreciated it. Um, and he has sent me basically um, kind of the complete catalog of all the Dark Places and Demogorgons supplements. So I've just finished reading through all of them, and there's some really amazing stuff in there. There's some stuff that if, if, you, uh, if you're interested in playing this game, I highly recommend. So I'm going to be talking about that in the near future as, as well. Um, and I will try not to be too rambling and mediocre when I do, um, because this is a great material, a really fun game, and deserves a, uh, a good assessment. Anyways, um, I hope everybody had a good, spooky, and yet safe Halloween. Um, We certainly did. Um, Always kind of a bummer when it happens in the middle of the week, but we did manage to get out. And I took my my five-year-old guising, which is what we call trick-or-treating in the UK, for the first time. So, and he had a great time. He was uh, Mario from Super Mario Brothers. Um, and yeah, um, a really good night. I hope everybody else had a great night too. And, um, until next time, play well and let the dice roll where they may or fall where they may. Yeah, that's the one.